for The Daily Princetonian. I'm Hope Perry. I'm Jack Anderson. You're listening to Daybreak. Yesterday, President Donald J. Trump was impeached for a second time in the U.S. House of Representatives. Today, we will speak with several Princeton scholars about this historic action and discuss its implications. It's Thursday, January 14th. Last Wednesday, January 6th, a mob of pro-Trump insurrectionists stormed the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to stop the counting of electoral votes. This Wednesday, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to impeach President Donald J. Trump, making him the only U.S. president to be impeached twice. Ten Republicans joined 222 Democrats in support of impeachment, agreeing that the leader of their own party had violated his oath of office by inciting insurrection against the government of the United States. Liz Cheney, the third highest ranking Republican in the House, is one of them. In a statement on Tuesday, she wrote, quote, There has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution, end quote. Earlier this week, 15 Princeton faculty members and researchers joined more than 1,400 historians and constitutional scholars in signing a joint statement in support of impeachment. Jack and I had the opportunity to speak with three of the Princeton scholars who signed the statement to hear their perspectives. Andrew Johnson was impeached for violating something called the Tenure of Office Act, which the um, Congress had passed, the radicals in Congress had passed more or less to defy him, to dare him to violate it so they can impeach him. I mean, that's pretty much what happened. Um, you know, that was uh, based on the fact that, that he had undermined congressional policy again and again and again over reconstruction. Yeah, he violated an act. That's, you know, something. And then uh, the Nixon case, which didn't get, you know, as far as, as, as actual impeachment, but that was, you know, Nixon committed crimes, which, you know, the evidence had come out that he had done so, so that the crimes were pretty significant in terms of you know, attacks on attacks on the state. Uh, you know, he was trying to cover up a crime and he was trying to use the body of state to to, under, to, to cover up that crime. That was pretty serious. The Clinton impeachment was a political impeachment. It was it was it was crazy. I thought. I mean, I I'm on record about that from 20 odd years ago. So um, I don't think that there was any justification for that. So we come to the Trump impeachment. <laughs> But we also wanted to know what made this impeachment different from others, particularly from the Trump impeachment last year, when the president was charged with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. At the time, only one non-Democrat in the House voted to impeach. We asked Professor Daniel Rogers. But this issue really goes right straight to a question that historians are deeply uh, knowledgeable about, and their knowledge is really needed in society, and that is how unprecedented have the events of the last uh, several weeks been, and particularly the incitement to occupy the the Capitol? And the answer is they are utterly unprecedented, and they are the kind of thing that the uh, great writers of the Constitution uh, vividly feared, um, tried to guard against, and uh, Donald Trump just ran right over those those railings as if they didn't exist. And um, that's a plain historical fact. Whether or not there is a conviction in the Senate, President Trump will be removed from office on January 20th when President-elect Joe Biden is inaugurated. So why impeach him anyway? Meg Jacobs, a senior research scholar at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, offered us an answer. Everyone in, in a civil society must be accountable. First and foremost, the President of the United States. So even if there is not time to remove him from office, then it's still vital to hold him accountable. So I think just for the sake of accountability and for the protection of our institutions, it's important that lawmakers take this act to go on record what they believe is and is not permissible. And then another reason that many are cited is the notion that if he were impeached, uh, one of the penalties 
could be, or one of the punishments could be banning from running for future office. Uh, and that actually has a lower threshold in terms of the numbers of con congressmen you would need to have that hack. So I think that that would be an important outcome. I don't think it's a likely outcome. I also think it's important to have a way of holding supporters of President Trump within Congress accountable too. In addition to symbolic significance, the impeachment could have practical consequences even if Trump is already out of office. If the Senate convicts the president, they could also hold a subsequent vote to ban him from future office. If a simple majority voted in favor of that ban, then, according to the Constitution, Trump would be unable to run for or hold, quote, any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. It's important to remember that we're in uncharted territory here. The last time an impeachment trial was held for someone who had already left office was the 1876 impeachment of Secretary of War William Belknap. All three previous presidential impeachments happened while the president was still in office, and all three cases resulted in acquittal in the Senate. Needless to say, this is a highly unusual situation, and it's hard to predict how it'll play out. An impeachment trial will take time, and there is concern that a trial could hamstring the Senate's ability to go about legislative business in the first 100 days of the Biden administration. I do think there is a danger in letting impeachment take over the vital work that President Biden will have to do in his first 100 days. Desperate times call for desperate measures, and we certainly are in desperate times right now, from the attack on our institutions to the pandemic to the gruesome number of deaths we've experienced, health crisis we've experienced in this country, to the economy, and to uh, make sure that we help out those who are in real need. Some Democrats, including the third-ranking Democrat in the House, Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, previously floated the idea of waiting to send the article of impeachment to the Senate to help Biden begin governing. However, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said yesterday that the articles would be sent to the Senate immediately. The Senate must begin the trial once the House sends the article. However, with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's announcement that he will not bring the Senate back early to hold an impeachment trial, Trump's trial will likely take place during Biden's presidency. President-elect Biden has often spoken about his goal to unify the country, but right now it seems like the only thing Americans actually are united about is the fact that we're divided. Many Republicans in Congress have pointed to this as a reason why they opposed impeachment, including Representative Tom Cole of Oklahoma, ranking member of the House Rules Committee. He spoke about this at the House debate on rules before Wednesday's impeachment vote. Mr. Speaker, I can think of no action the House can take that's more likely to further divide the American people than the action we are contemplating today. Emotions are clearly running high, and political divisions have never been more apparent in my lifetime. We desperately need to seek a path forward, healing for the American people. So it's unfortunate that uh, a path to support healing is not the path the majority has chosen today. Instead, the House is moving forward erratically with a truncated process that does not comport with the modern practice, and that will give members no time to contemplate the serious course of action before us. Congressman Cole's comments were representative of many of his fellow Republican statements in opposition to impeachment. But some scholars, including Professor Wilentz, believe that legislators' commitment to the Constitution should take precedent. They never argue on the merits of the case. It's always about something circumstantial. The question is, what about the merits of the case? Are you prepared to say that the president did not incite a mob that went and, 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 and sacked the capital of the United States? 
you don't hear that. And that, in fact, is the only thing that we can um, really go on, it seems to me. I mean, if you're going to be responsible to your oath of office, to, to, to def, you know, preserving, protecting, and defending the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I mean, it's not even a question of, of tactics or strategy. You have a duty under, under your, your, they have a duty under their um, um, oath of office. And we have a duty as, a, as Americans, I think, to see this as an infraction that has to be dealt with quite severely. As Jacobs points out, sometimes sparking division can be a consequence of pushing forward policies that a politician truly believes are best for the American people. She cited Franklin Roosevelt as a potential example for Joe Biden and pointed out that his most popular policies were also divisive. Many remember the New Deal so fondly, but in its, in its day, and even after its day, it engendered a lot of hatred. Roosevelt was known by many of his opponents as simply that man in the White House because they refused to utter his name. He was seen as someone himself who was engaging in treasonous behavior for the way he was reinventing the role of government in Americans' lives. And so that kind of departure led to real opposition. Joe Biden, like Roosevelt, has to see the political and human benefits of being brave and willing to take sort of bold acts and use his leadership for good, even if that means triggering opponents who see the purpose of government differently. Mark Twain is often credited with saying, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. The word unprecedented has been used an unprecedented number of times to describe the events of the past few weeks and even years in America. But we wanted to find out if Biden's goal of unifying the country is something that any past presidents have been able to accomplish in times of great division. Professor Wilentz gave us some context. Previous presidents have tried to, to try to unify the country after the, um, you know, amidst great division. Um, Gerald Ford, you know, said so after the Nixon non-impeachment, but nevertheless after the Nixon resignation. He said the great, you know, the long national nightmare is over. And he very much wanted, really much felt that by pardoning Nixon, he was helping to accelerate a healing of the country. Lincoln, we can't tell because of the great tragedy um, uh, of his murder, of his assassination. So we don't know. And then Andrew Johnson comes in and the whole thing's a mess. But all hope is not lost. Professor Emeritus Rogers, who wrote a book about the disintegration of shared American values in the 1980s, shared his optimism that the incoming Biden administration has an opportunity to unify the country through emphasizing shared American values. He also offered some perspective about our divided country, as well as what he thinks Biden can do to bridge America's divisions when he becomes president. Uh, one, one quick historical thing for your listeners is that the United States has been this divided and much more divided before. It's not unprecedented to have very, very strong uh, divisions, sectional, religious, political, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what Biden needs to, to uh, latch on to is that most Americans still do believe in democratic processes. They still believe in an economy that works for everybody, and they're disappointed that when it doesn't. They still do believe that, that uh, human beings are valuable persons that needed to be valued by their, their society and their, and their government. Um, and they're often angry when they feel that that's not the case. So this, it, if, if he can make his words connected with some policies, economic policies, social policies that, that Americans can recognize as working for the good of all, um, his words will have some traction. America's road ahead will be challenging, but to quote Alexis de Tocqueville, the greatness of America lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. That's all for Daybreak Today.
You can read the full statement by the historians and constitutional scholars by clicking the link in the episode's description. This episode was written by Jack Anderson, Francesca Block, and myself, and was produced under the 145th Managing Board of the Prince. Our theme was composed by Ed Horn, Class of 22. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Hope Perry. And I'm Jack Anderson. Have a wonderful day.